You're listening to Amazing Health, where we empower you to make informed health decisions. This is Proven Principles for Good Health, Episode 2, with Diana Burnett. Our presentation on physiology, physiology of addiction will continue with the second part that we had done on a previous um, lecture. And today we are going to go into more what happened spiritually at creation when God created Adam and Eve and how our world came to be in the state that it is in. But let's review just a little bit the main things that we covered previously and what we had established that is in God's order of authority. It's always the higher power over the lower power. So we have God who is the highest power, and then all of his creation is under him as the lower power, subjected to him. And of course, as creator and a higher power, he's not a dictator, he's a loving God, but he takes care of his creation and all work in harmony together. And when he created man, the way that we see that the brain is set up is the very same pattern. We have higher powers over lower powers. And if you look at our slide, we see that we have the frontal lobe where our intellect, our area of judgment and reason, it's actually the area that scientists have found is where our spirituality is centered. So all of the things that we learn in life, the facts, are all put into the frontal lobe. And you could say that the laws that govern our life are there in the frontal lobe to be directing of all the other things that we choose to do. And then deeper in the brain, we find what is called the limbic system. So the area here on our slide that is gold in color with the words desire, the word desire over it, that is our limbic system. And the main thing that the limbic system does for us is our feelings and our emotions. It also has to do with our memories, and particularly memories that are associated with emotion. And so the things that we desire to do, the, the things that we have that we would call our instinctive drive, comes from our limbic system. Things like our need to eat, our need to drink, and even procreate. But those drives that are in the limbic system, the lower powers, should be controlled by principles of the frontal lobe, the morals that we are taught. And in a general sense, in biblical sense, it's really the laws of God, because the laws that God gives us are to govern and the choices that we make and, and regulate this instinctive drive. Let me give you an example. We have, as human beings, the drive to procreate. It's actually, if we did not have that, our race would go extinct. There would be no more human beings. But if you had no regulating principle, if you didn't have laws to govern how you procreate, we would actually have the situation that we have in the world today. You don't need to get married. God's commandments say, thou shalt not commit adultery. The plan that God made is that a man would take a woman and they would commit their lives to each other for their lifetime. 
And in that setting of security, of growth and of protection and happiness, procreation is appropriate. But when you remove those principles, if you take the frontal lobe off of that and just say, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, which is the motto really in our world today, if it feels good, do it. That's working on the principles of instinctive drive, the limbic system. So just go live with somebody or just go have somebody different every day. So do you see how the importance is to have the higher powers, the principles of moral living, regulating this animal drive that God put in us? So that's what we talked about as we were looking at the, begin the basis of addiction. And we also discussed that in the Bible, what really we call in today's world addiction is termed sin in the Bible. It's anything that we do that breaks the laws that govern our being. Now, we want to move on into our talk today and finish up this whole situation of addiction. In the Bible, Jesus actually gave us a key to how Satan gets us, entices us into sin. And it's found in the verse Matthew 20, 12, excuse me, verse 29. And Jesus made this comment. How can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods? How can it be done, he says, except he first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. So if someone wants to take over, we had talked about the king of the mountain, and if someone wants to come in and overtake that king, or if someone wants to come into your house and overpower it and take things from you, how can it be done? Well, Jesus said very clearly, you have to first bind the strong man. And as we discovered that the strong man to be bound, the the man who is the ruler of our body presides in our frontal lobe, in our mind, particularly in the frontal lobe, and one particular function of the frontal lobe, and that is the will. When you study the will, the simple definition of the will is that it is your decisive governing force. It's what makes the decision that you're going to go right or you're going to go left. You're going to do this or you're not going to do this. So the strong man that needs to be bound is the will. And once the will is taken into captive by someone other than yourself, you're taken over. So let's see how that happens. The way that the will is captured is not really that hard to explain. Let's take a look at this slide. And you'll see the darker pink represents the conscious mind. And deeper in the, that pink, you see the unconscious mind. Now, this isn't anatomically how the brain is set up. It's more functional. We have the consciousness and the subconscious or unconsciousness. Now, here on the left-hand side, we have all of the functions of the consciousness. You might not be able to see it clearly. Let me read them off to you. Everything that we do for planning, 
you know, every day you have to make plans, even brushing your teeth, when you're going to eat, you have to get to your job, or if you're not going to go to your job, if you're going to decide to go to school. Those are functions of planning, and that takes the conscious mind. Critical thinking is part of the consciousness. Short-term memory is in the conscious mind. Judgments and decisions are the other parts of what the conscious mind does. Now let's move to what the subconscious does. On the left-hand side of the screen, we see the list. In the subconscious, habits and patterns come from the subconscious. Automatic body functions. You don't always have to think about breathing. How many times do you get busy and you're not even thinking that you have to breathe or that your heart is beating? So those are things that take place in the subconscious mind. Cellular memory, you just be happy. You don't have to take control of your cellular, all the functions that happen in a single cell. That's subconscious. Creativity, emotion, and protection. Protection of your physical body as well as protection of your, um, your ego, yourself. That is all in the subconscious, unconscious mind. Let me give you a few details about the subconscious mind. The first thing I want you to realize is that the subconscious does not judge what you tell it. It takes everything as a fact. The subconscious cannot tell the difference between what is true and what is false. The subconscious works 24 hours a day. It works whether you're awake or whether you're asleep. It takes everything as literal and it never says no. I want you to remember those two points because this comes in to how the will, when it's functioning under the subconscious, it can become dangerous because if you never know to say no, Oh, I, as a parent, you would never want your children to never obey you, you know, to just do what they want, that you have to learn how to say no. But from the subconscious mind, it never says no. The subconscious only recognizes the present. It doesn't care about yesterday, and it doesn't care about tomorrow. So if you're in school and you have a test coming up on Friday, and today is Wednesday, but you have a chance to go to the river and go swimming, if you are just working by the subconscious mind, you're not going to care about Friday. You're going to do what you want to do now. And so when your friends say, hey, Jimmy, come, let's go. We're going to go down to the river. Let's ditch school. You don't care about your future. You just care about what happiness will be today. The subconscious is your your source of dreams and automated thoughts. Have you ever done something that you think, why did I do that? You do it just without thinking? Well, the reason is, is because your subconscious mind is what's feeding the will and saying, this is what you need to do before your conscious mind can even have a chance to say, yes, do it or don't do it. Another amazing thing about the subconscious mind is that every thought 
every word, every experience, every stimulation, visual, audio, taste, everything that you experience in life is recorded in your brain, whether you recognize that you, you see it or not. For example, let's say you're driving down the freeway and there's billboards all along the road, quick, quick, quick. You, your conscious mind cannot read every word that's on that billboard, but your subconscious can. So everything that's on there is registered into your brain. There's neurosurgeons that have, in, in the middle of brain surgery, one story that I remember, as the physician had, had this person's brain opened, touched a certain part on the brain of his patient. And at that moment, a concert that she had heard decades ago was played perfectly, note by note, that, she, that was in her past. So this is an example that you might not remember all the notes, and if you're not musical, you, don't even, you couldn't even put the notes on a piece of page even if you remembered them. But it's recorded in your brain. Okay, so let's go back and look at how we're going to capture the will. Let's take this chart with the functions of the consciousness and the subconsciousness and put it in an anatomical form. So we want to go to the brain with the frontal lobe and the limbic system and all of the supporting systems. And let's look at what the conscious mind does. So we have our list, planning, critical thinking, short-term memory, judgments and decisions. All of those take place in the frontal lobe. Now let's look at our subconscious list. We had memories, habits, emotions and feelings, our automatic body functions, protection, and pleasure. These are all part of the subconscious mind. But if we look at the anatomical function of the brain, what we're going to find is that it, the, all these um, functions of the subconscious are functions of the limbic system. So when we're looking at the conscious mind or the subconscious mind, we're really looking at the activities of the frontal lobe, the higher power, over the limbic system, the lower powers. Now, I'm making this very simplistic, and I don't want you to say, oh, there's other things that happen. Of course there is. But I'm just trying to put it down to the most simple details and the prominent parts of the brain that are um, functioning in this aspect. So both the conscious mind and the subconscious mind are going to have an impact on the will. One or the other, depending on which is overpowering, is going to influence your will to make the decision that you make. So how is this going to happen? How do you capture the will? Take it away from functioning from the frontal lobe, the principles of morality, the principles that God gave us in the Ten Commandments. Let me show you how it's done. It is done through hypnosis. Now, you might be like me. I think my general idea of hypnosis 
was that, you know, someone has like a pocket watch hanging and they swing it in front of you and they put you into a trance and you lose consciousness and you're basically in a dream, dream state. But that's not truly what happens with hypnosis. Let's look at some of the points of hypnosis. And these um, studies have come from people who practice hypnosis. The first thing about hypnosis is that all hypnosis is self-hypnosis. That's basically saying, this is a hypnotherapist talking, and it's like, I'm not really doing the hypnosis. It's the person that's hypnotizing himself. That is, the client has complete control over their experience. So you can't blame someone else for making you do something else. That's what they're saying. Hypnosis is an awake state. It's not being in a trance. But the physical body, the rest of your, your body, your muscles, you're relaxed. That's a very key point. So the physical body is relaxed. The next thing is that the conscious mind is subdued. Just review. I want to make sure you're good students and that you remember what the conscious mind was. If I, if I said on a test, okay, what part of the brain is the conscious mind? Your answer should be the frontal lobe. So we could say the frontal lobe is subdued. The next thing is that the subconscious mind, which is the limbic system, is heightened to become open to suggestion. And the last thing is that suggestions are given to be accepted as true. And the effect is on your belief system, it's on your habits, it's on your perceptions, and your behaviors. Just reading that ought to make you afraid of hypnosis because it's putting you into, into a position that you are going to be functioning from the subconscious mind. The choices you make are based from where your instinctive drive is without any regulation from the frontal lobe. So what does hypnosis do? This is from a hypnotherapist site. It says hypnosis is a tool to do what? It is to rid us of our inhibitions or behaviors that may be holding us back in life. Now, what could that be? I will tell you that a big part of it is that it is to get rid of your moral ideas, your Judeo-Christian beliefs that say, oh, that's old-fashioned to get married. You don't want to get, you don't have to get married. You just need to experience these pleasures. It's part of human life. And if you have this law hanging over you, it's going to prevent you from experiencing these happy things. The second thing that hypnosis does that you have to recognize, the hypnotherapist cannot make you do or say anything outside of your belief system without your participation or agreement. So 
you go in to a hypnotherapist and you think, oh, they can't make me change. But the techniques that they learn, that someone who has understood this technique is how to get into your thinking and get you to relax your frontal lobe and be open to things that they suggest. Now, this could seem like it could have positive effects at times. Let me tell you an example. I have a friend in the town where I live, and he started smoking marijuana as a young person. And he is now in his mid-60s. And in his older years, he tried and he tried and he tried to quit smoking marijuana. And he could not break the habit. Finally, one day, he said, I need help. And he found a therapist who knew how to do hypnosis. And through hypnosis, he was freed from smoking marijuana. Now, you can say, wow, that's a great thing. So there must be good times when you use hypnosis. As we talk a little bit more about this, you're going to see that that's absolutely not a good thing. Because whenever you do not strengthen the frontal lobe, that you strengthen your willpower based on decisions from principles that are God's principles, and you work just by someone else telling you, oh, this is what you need to do, you're really weakening your ability to make choices for yourself. And any time you give yourself to being hypnotized, it makes you more vulnerable to be hypnotized the second time. The first time might not be as easy, but each progressive time that you come under the power of hypnosis, your brain's patterns will more easily slip into this pattern of the subconscious telling you what to do. So what do you think about this statement that this hypnotherapist says, that it is a tool to rid us of our inhibition and that we have complete control of the experience? When I first read that, I thought, oh, that's not true. That's not true because they're taking control of me. So I started thinking about it. Have you ever done things and you say, oh, the devil made me do it? Let me ask you that question. Can Satan force us to sin? This is very important because it gets to the root of who's responsible for our actions. And we like to blame somebody. And the devil is a good scapegoat. We can say, oh, he made me do it. But let me tell you, that is not true. I want to read something to you. This passage says, the tempter, that's Satan, can never compel us to evil. That statement right there is telling us Satan is never able to force you to do something wrong. But here's what he does. He cannot can take control of your mind unless they're yielded to his control. You see, when we talked about the will, king will, that's your kingly power of your being. But there's higher powers than us. And even the powers of darkness, Satan and his evil angels, 
are more powerful than any human being, any fallen human being. And of course, God is the highest power. And if I asked you, who sits on the throne of your life? Is it God or is it Satan? Well, truly, the right answer is neither one of them because God gives you freedom of choice. He wants you to make your own decision. That's the gift of free will. Now, Satan doesn't want that. He wants to force you. But in order to force you, when you surrender to him, then he becomes your dictator. But Jesus, our loving God, will never be a dictator. He always is a gentleman, and he will always ask your permission. Even though he wants to influence you to write, he will only want you to do it if you surrender and yield and say, I want to do what you want me to do. So let's go back to the question, if Satan can make us do anything. So the only way that he can control your mind is if you yield to his control. And here's the key. Your will must consent. And how does it consent? Oh, in a hundred ways. I think you all know it every day. He entices you with something wonderful. And somehow it rings a chord in us and we say, that's what I want. And as soon as we decide that, he's in charge. But our faith must let hold upon Christ before Satan can exercise his power upon us. So this can be a good news and bad news because we can no longer blame Satan. And every time we give way to something we should not do, what it means is that we have let go of the strength that God gives us to follow his ways. All right, now let's go back and look at the anatomical picture here. We have our slide of the frontal lobe and the limbic system, and the frontal lobe with the laws, the, the, let's say the Ten Commandments. That's where God puts those, those Ten Commandments, is in our frontal lobe. And then in our limbic system with the desires. So we have the higher power over the lower power. That's the way God designed us. But here is what hypnosis does to us. So as you look at this change, the limbic system with the desires, the lower powers, as you look at the slide, you see now the lower powers and the desires from the limbic system overrule the frontal lobe. And that part is actually subdued so that you can really, the, the laws are more vague to your mind. There's something that makes this whole process function um, with more impact. And that is the dopamine rush that we get when we do something that triggers the nucleus accumbens, the pleasure center. And that happens with oh, when we eat something good that we like. It could even be, oh, well, I'll have to tell you, I used to get a dopamine rush if I ate a Buster Bar. But um, today, I get dopamine, probably not a dopamine rush, but I get my joy from eating a bowl of kale. So it's more that this, it's an overstimulation of the limbic system, and we get flooded with this dopamine. And the dopamine is responsible for our sense of pleasure, 
and it's responsible for the desire that continues to come up in our memory. Oh, wasn't that a great experience? And you remember how good you felt with it, and you have a driving desire to go back and do it again. So how do the hypnotherapist work? What are some of the things that have to happen to get the frontal lobe subdued and the limbic system heightened? We have a list here. The first thing that's important is you have to have focused attention. Now this might be sound counter to the fact that it's working from the consciousness because the subconscious, you think of things happening without you paying attention. But you have to kind of zero in on one thing. Your physical body is relaxed, and side issues that are going on need to be diminished. So you need to be focused on one little thing. Back to that little idea that we have, you know, with the hypnotherapist with the little watch um, swinging in front of you. That's the idea of zoning your mind into one object and forgetting everything else that's going on around you. The next thing is repetition. And this is short repetition over and over and over again. And the repetition doesn't even have to be something evil. I mean, it could be something like the word Jesus. So as Christians, we think, oh, there's nothing wrong. I mean, the name of Jesus is holy. But when you say Jesus, 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 or even Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, it is part of the pattern of subduing the frontal lobe and heightening the limbic system. The other thing that they use is rapid change of scenes. We'll finish this list and we'll come back to an example of that. Heightened suggestibility and fantasies also play a big part with hypnosis. So people that have a tendency to daydream are going to be more susceptible to hypnosis than those who are not daydreamers. When we think of rapid change of sceneries, focused attention, getting rid of peripheral um, attention, um, events going on, any activity outside there. Does that make you think of a certain um, experience, recreation that people do almost on a daily basis? They have a focused attention. I'm going to tell you one of the biggest tools for hypnosis is the television. And modern TV with the rapid change of scenes is part of getting you to stop functioning from the frontal lobe and work from the limbic system. So as we go back to our thoughts of God's plan for authority, and we have the higher powers over the lower powers, let's look at Satan's plan and how this fits with hypnosis. So Satan's plan is to take the lower power of creation, whether it's angels, human beings, the limbic system, and put it above the higher powers. He wants you to be a slave. Addiction is his game. Now let's talk about how to bypass the conscious mind. I'm going to give you three categories. The first one is anything that clouds your mind. What kind of things cloud your mind? 
Oh, there's a number of them. Let's put all three of them up and then look, think of examples. A second category is anything that numbs your mind. And the third category is anything that distracts your mind. So as you think of these things, right away I think of alcohol, maybe even smoking, you know, illicit drugs. We know that those things dampen our mind. What about confusion? When you start listening to all these different voices and when, let's say, you're raised with good Christian principles and then you go out and you enter a public school system. And I don't mean to say this to say there's not good out there, but it's more in the system where God is not mentioned. And that's where you start hearing many ideas that are really contrary to biblical teaching, that puts doubt in your mind. So all these things coming at you from figures of authority start clouding your mind and making it difficult to really sort through the principles that you had been taught. And that can lead you to be open to the suggestions that perhaps God doesn't exist. Perhaps it doesn't matter what I do. You know, who wants to be old-fashioned? Let's get rid of those old-fashioned beliefs and live like everybody around us. It's more fun. It's more pleasurable. So those kind of things. And alcohol, that's, that's kind of in numbing the mind, too. Um, distracting the mind. Oh, there's so many thousands of things that distract our mind and numbs our mind. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and something else, some other event starts happening, someone comes in, and the focus turns away from you. You know at that instance, when you lose their focus, they're distracted to something else. They're not going to catch what you're saying. So Satan uses distractions in a thousand different forms to cloud our minds, our conscious mind. Let's, let's talk about something in the spiritual world that works in this fashion. Let's take the simple subject of prayer versus meditation. Now in the Psalms, David talked about his joy of meditation, meditating upon the law of God. That's not talking about that type of meditation. What I'm talking about is meditation that is where you zone out. So if you look at the, t the difference between prayer and meditation on the brain level, the first thing that we realize with prayer, you have focused attention. Your conscious mind is still engaged. And the brain, if it was hooked up to a machine, an EEG that can measure your sound waves, what the scientists have found is your brain is putting out some of the highest types of brain waves called beta waves. They're active energetic waves. But in meditation, Eastern type meditation, the brain acts totally different. What they find is that the mind goes into this hypnotic trance, and that is the waveforms that are lower in energy than the beta waves. They're alpha and even theta waves. So it's more of a, a trance. So this meditation is putting you into a hypnotic state, which means you're not going to be functioning from good principles, 
but you're going to be functioning from that limbic system, your animal drives. What about amusements? You know, here's we have on this picture here a, a carnival and, and the dizziness of it, all these lights and things spinning around. As a people, we love to be entertained. Even with lectures, we love people that make us laugh and we love people that entertain us. But amusements in general are not so funny. Let me tell you why. Let's look at the word amusement. If we separate it into the two um, basic parts, we have a muse. Okay, what does that tell you about it? Well, let me ask you, what does muse mean? Muse means to think. You know, I sat one day and I was just musing over what I could have been in life if I would have only... You know, you're thinking about things. So muse is to think. What does A mean? Well, before I tell you what it means, let's look at the word atheist. Theist is a person who believes in God, who thinks about God. A means without. So an atheist is someone who is without God. Okay, so there's a theist, they're with God, but an atheist separates their life from God. So you put those two thoughts together, amuse, what does it mean? It means to cause to not think. So I don't want you to say, oh, Dr. Diane says anything amusing is wrong. You must guard your amusements. There's proper recreation that is healthy, but you've got to guard it from being distracted by things that are really causing you to not think. And... It could be something like sports. Some of us are sport addicts. Sitting and watching someone else play a game is really something that takes our frontal lobe, disengages it, and makes us think from the subconscious. So we need to guard those practices, even what we watch and the entertainment that we have. I want to give you a Bible definition because Jesus gave a parable to warn us of what happens that will take away the principles of heaven from us. If you remember the story of the sower, he, it's recorded in both Mark and also in Luke. And in that story of the sower, Remember, he went out and he sowed his seed. And there were different types of um, soil where the seed landed. One landed on stony ground. One landed by the wayside. One landed among, some landed among weeds and thorns and stickers. And another group of seeds landed in good soil. And when Jesus was explaining this parable, to his listeners, he said that you've got to be careful. What this parable means is that there are things that you do 
that will steal the Word of God out of your heart. So I've listed them, and I've called them word stealers, because Jesus said, be careful of these. And he tells us that Satan will come. He will steal away the word that someone has heard. Perhaps you're listening to a preacher, and you're being impressed by the words, and it moves you to give your heart to Jesus. But then after you're moved by that, you go out and a gang of your old friends say, hey, come on, let's go to this party. And you take off with them. Those impressions from the truths of God's word will be taken away from you. So Satan is looking to steal the truth out of your heart. Persecution. If you're going to be threatened with your life, if you continue to follow the ways that you live, do you think you'll change? We have millions of people that have gone before us and have given their lives for their belief in Jesus. But millions more have changed because they protected their life instead of giving it up. So persecution is something that will steal the Word of God from you. The rest of the list, afflictions, temptations, cares of this world, riches and pleasures, those things, Jesus said, will cause you to lose the principles that I have wanted to put in your heart and put in your mind, in your frontal lobe. The cares of this world, I think, are some of the biggest things that carry Christians away because you can get caught up with having to work. We have to buy food. We have to put gas in the car. We have to pay for rent. And it's consuming. And sometimes those um, time-consuming activities that press on our life will take away our time to spend with Jesus. And we will soon drift away from Him. There are many, many things that will carry us away and bring us really into this state of hypnosis. We don't like to ever think that, oh, I've been hypnotized. I've allowed someone else to control my mind. But every one of us have been subjected to hypnotism. And there's many things that each one of us face. And I want to encourage each one of you to look at your life and look at the way that it's structured And pray that God will help you simplify your life and take away all the things that carry the word away from you. So as we come to the close of understanding hypnosis, we've got a little more to do in how Satan actually gets into your mind. But what I want you to see is that hypnosis is how Satan takes over the mountain that he wants to be king of king of your mind, and he does it through hypnosis. How did he do it to Adam and Eve? Let's look at it. Let's turn to Genesis. As we look at the beginning, we see in the first few chapters of Genesis, the very beginning when God created this world. In some writings that talk about the creation story. One is the book Patriarchs and Prophets and some other writings. I want to—I pulled out a couple statements. The first one is that Adam and Eve's affections 
were pure. His appetites, his appetites and passions were under the control of reason. Now I want to ask you, with the information you've received about the brain, when it says his affections were pure, what part of the brain is that talking about? Where's the affections? It's in his limbic system, the emotions, the feelings. So his limbic system was pure. His appetites, where's the appetite? And where's the passions? That's in the limbic system. His limbic system was under the control of reason. Where's your reasoning? What part of the brain? That's your frontal lobe. So what this statement is saying, in the garden, Adam had a mind where his frontal lobe with the reasoning power was in control of these limbic system desires and passions and appetites. The other statement that's important comes from a periodical that was written over a hundred years ago. And it says that the first great moral lesson given to Adam was that of self-denial. The reins of self-government were placed in his hands. God was not a dictator. He said, Adam, you're going to be in control of yourself. Judgment, reason, and conscience were to bear sway. So if we break this down, it says that Adam was given self-denial. If you'll remember, self, ego, is in the limbic system. So the first lesson that Adam had to learn was to say no to his animal drives, no to his appetite. He was taught principles that governed his health and his well-being. He wasn't free to just do everything at any time. Here he is in this beautiful garden, and there is food everywhere. Now, he was taught the best principles of eating. Do you know that eating constantly, going from tree to tree and just eating every 15, 20 minutes, every hour, is not the best for digestion? He was taught the principles that how his body worked. So I can just imagine the angels coming to Adam and saying, Now, Adam, you're going to feel hungry. And so let's ha share a meal. And so I can see them sharing a meal that they've picked fresh from the trees. And then after the meals, the angel said, Now, Adam, I want to tell you, it takes some time for your digestive system to take care of this food you just ate. So don't eat again, because if you do, it will stop the digestion of the food you already have, and it will start fermenting. And so don't eat anything for five hours until your next meal. So Adam had to learn to say, even if his stomach or his mouth started giving him a message, oh, let's eat that, that looks so beautiful, he had to say, no, it's not time to eat. So he had self-denial. The reins of self-government were in his hands. Judgment, reason, and conscience were to bear sway. That's the function of the frontal lobe. So Adam and Eve were working on the premise of the laws that were put into their frontal lobe. And then we come 
to the story in Genesis 3. This is where all the sadness that we face in this world comes from. We're told in some writings that were over 100 years ago in um, a volume that's called Manuscript Release, and it makes this statement. Satan exercised his power of hypnosis over Adam and Eve. Now, based on what we just learned about hypnosis, that should tell you what he did. He subdued the frontal lobe, he heightened the limbic system, and then he made suggestions. Let's look at how it worked. Again, when we look at the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, well, first let's look at the law. We've got to go back and realize what God said to Adam and Eve. So we want to read Genesis 1. And in verse 16 and 17, this is where we see that God gave a principle to Adam and Eve. He said, of every tree that I have put in this garden, you may freely eat. But, there's always that but. And kids, don't you hate it when your parents say, but? Because then you know something else is coming that's going to restrict you. And God gave a restriction. He said, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat thereof, ye shall surely die. So this principle was taught to Adam and Eve. And they were told about Satan and the fallen angels and how they were out to rebel against God and what had happened in heaven and that he wanted to destroy God's new creation. And he would particularly want to get to Adam and Eve and change their loyalty. So God and the angels were trying to warn Adam and Eve. And Satan had one limited spot in all of this new world that Satan was allowed to go. And God said, don't go, don't go close to there because that's where the enemy will find you. And that's where you'll find the enemy. Okay, so that was the laws. And I'm sure there's other principles, but this was the one that was particularly given by God to test their obedience. So when we go into Genesis 3, we see that Satan has to take over the mind. All right, so God has given this principle to Adam and Eve, and it's recorded in their frontal law to help them govern their decisions. Now we come to Genesis 3, and we see the story of where Satan, in, when, where Adam and Eve encounter Satan. So the first thing, we're not told a lot of details, and the first thing that we're told is this statement in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Satan said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? What is he addressing? The first thing he has to do in exercising hypnosis is to address the law in the frontal lobe. He has to subdue the frontal lobe. So he's going right at the target. Did God say this to you? What was the next thing? Well, Eve gives him an answer. But let's move back. This isn't in the story, but knowing that Eve is right there beginning to talk to him, you realize 
that somehow she got from being somewhere else in the garden and she got over to that tree where she should not be. Now, I believe that God put two people together to give strength. The Bible says that there's strength in numbers, that there's with, with two, they warm each other, they support each other. When one is down, the other can be strong. And so God wanted Adam and Eve to work together, and particularly when it comes to fighting any temptation that would come in. I believe that Eve was warned, do not leave Adam's side. And so the first thing we have to realize is that she somehow wandered away as she was probably doing her wonderful job in the garden. She wandered over and there she got close to that beautiful tree. Now you have to realize the tree of evil, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was not an ugly tree. The fruit was not ugly. It was a beautiful tree, just like everything else in the garden. And as Eve, I can just think of her as she was turning her feet towards that and she caught the gaze of that tree. I think she started thinking in her mind, why did God say we can't have that? It looks just like every other fruit. In fact, it looks beautiful. I've never seen it like that. Let's go take a closer look. And as she's walking, I think that she became aware Oh, I've wandered from Adam. And just like modern women today, the thoughts could have turned something like this. Oh, I'm smart enough. I don't need my husband to help me make a decision. I can do this on my own. I'm strong. I know how to tell what's right and wrong. And she continued on her way. We're told that the serpent was a beautiful animal, a beautiful creature. But he was a created animal, just like all the other ones, and no animal in the garden spoke the language of man. Now, they didn't speak English like I speak today, or they didn't speak any of the languages that our viewers out there are speaking. But this, the animals had their own language, whether they barked or growled or snorted and hooted, they had their own language. But when Eve got to the tree and she saw this serpent, and from historical pictures um, of older versions of, of serpents, some people believe that the serpents even had wings. And so we believe it was a winged serpent. And I believe it was just he was a dazzling creature. And as Eve got close to him and he started talking to her, it took her by surprise. If a serpent started take, talking to you, would it take you by surprise? And so as she was caught off guard, in fact, it was as though he was reading her mind. How did he know I was wondering about why God said I couldn't eat from this tree? This is something different. I've never heard an animal speak this way. Do you see? All of her senses are being engaged. And so while the, the law in her frontal lobe is being addressed, all of her senses are being heightened. And the senses go through the limbic system. Eve made a fatal mistake. 
she started talking back to him. You know, do you like telemarketers? You get a call on the phone and they want to sell you something? Well, if they can just get you to listen and they have a good enough sales pitch, they hope that they'll get someone to buy in. And there's one telemarketer, when you pick it up, the first thing the recording says is, don't hang up. The reason is because they want you to listen. If you do not listen to their arguments, you're not going to buy. So if Eve would have just ran from that tree, she would have never bought what Satan had to sell. And she answered back to him. And we see in Genesis that she said to the serpent, Yes, we may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden. Yes, you're right. That's what God told me. And he also said, but the fruit of the tree of knowledge, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, as you look at that, what Eve said back, is that what God said to her. Did God say, if you touch the tree, the fruit of the tree, you will die? That's not what God said. What God said is in the day that you eat it, then you will die. But Eve changed the words of God, changed the meaning of what he said, and added, if you touch it, you will die. Now, I want to tell you, I personally believe that God and the holy angels warned Adam and Eve not to touch the fruit. But touching the fruit was not what would cause death. But let me ask you, if you get a food in your hand, how close are you to putting it in your mouth? In fact, it's human nature. You know, when a little child first starts learning to move and they're crawling along the floor, you've got to vacuum your floor every day because everything that comes in its path is picked up and put in the mouth. That we're just creatures of habit that way that we pick up and put it in our mouth. If I'm cooking and I get something on my finger, my first reaction is to put it in my mouth and clean it off. I believe that God said, if you are close enough that you're actually holding that fruit, you're in trouble. It's not the sin, but it's the path of temptation. And so when you're looking at how to be free from addictions, how to be free from sin, the first thing you have to realize is remove the path that puts you into the trap. There may be things that are not the addiction itself, but you set yourself up from it. And you need to identify those things and remove them from your life. And so what Eve did here, when she added those words, is she gave Satan the perfect foundation to deceive her. Because here she is, looking at this serpent, and he's talking after eating the fruit. He's eating the fruit in front of her. He had eaten it. And now he's smarter than all the other animals. He's talking, and he's beautiful. And he has put the fruit in her hand, and she's touching it. 
And I want, to think, I want you to think about what's going on in her mind. All of a sudden, there's confusion. God said, don't eat this fruit or you're going to die. And everything that she's experiencing is counter to that truth. The serpent is beautiful. He's talking. She's touching the fruit, and she's not dead. The serpent has eaten the fruit, and she's not dead. Everything to her senses now tells her that God was tricking her, and what this creature is telling her is truth. And so the serpent at that time could come back to her and flat out deny what God has said. The serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. And then he went on to say, for God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes will be opened and you shall be like God's knowing good and evil. And what he was doing was putting the bait out to her. What God has told you, what's in your frontal lobe, is not true. And all of the limbic system, all of those desires are heightened, and everything she sees, she wants. Now you'll see on my slide, I've got a picture of a fish facing that delicious worm. And you see the little hearts? That fish is thinking of how wonderful it would be to eat that worm. This is very key. The reason I put this picture here with this um, scripture is because in the book of Revelation, there are a group of people, there is a group of people, that we're told that will not take the bait. In Revelation 14, we're, we see a picture of 144,000. They're a group of people that have stood for God even at the threat of life. Nothing could entice them. It says in verse 5 of chapter 14, and in their mouth is found no guile. If you look at the interpretation of guile in the Greek, one of the definitions is fish bait. So it's just like the fish on our picture. He is hungry, and he's not looking at the hook. All he is thinking is satisfying his need to eat, and he takes the bait. But there will be a people who will not take the bait. Now, let me ask you, why was Satan so successful? You might think, oh, if I was in Eve's situation, I wouldn't have taken the bait. Well, there's some principles of sales. And this, this is actually taught to people who go into the sales business. I have a friend, and her father was a salesman all his life. He was one of the top salesmen in the community where he lived, and he had a number of different businesses, all highly successful. And he taught his daughter how he did it. And these were the two principles he said that you have to learn in order to get a sale. The first one is that three yeses equals a sale. So someone comes into your furniture store, and they're looking for a new chair. 
you want them to have three yeses. So they're, they're browsing around, and you ask them, well, what color do you want? You find out they want brown. Oh, okay, what else? What other, what, what other um, criteria do you want in your chair? Well, I want one that kicks back. Okay, okay. And I want one that will swivel and kind of rock, you know, when it's not kicked back. Oh, okay. Well, let me show you. Let me take you over here. I have just the chair for you. And here's this beautiful chair. It's the color. Do you like it? Oh, yes. And your eyes light up. And he sits you in it, and he shows you how to put that lever back. And then he shows you how you can sit up and rock in it. When you get three yeses, the chances that that customer will buy it is almost 100%. The other thing is, Whatever you fall in love with, you have to be willing to pay the seller's price. So if you go on a car lot and right away the salesman comes out there, he's going to ask you what you want. And you tell him, oh, I want a truck. I want this color. I want an extended crew cab. And you might have a few other things that you tell him. And he takes you over to the very truck that you fall in love with. And as soon as you see that vehicle, there's something in us. I've got to have it. That is just what I want. As soon as you come to that place and the salesman knows it, you almost have to pay his price. There's very little bargaining. So you always want to say, oh, I don't know. I'll have to think about it. Never make a decision on the spur of the moment. Always give yourself at least 24 hours if possible. Okay, so with these two principles, let's go back and see what Eve did. Did Eve follow? Um, was she taken by these two principles? Let's look. So as we go back into Genesis 3, we're told, And when the woman saw these three things about the tree, one, that it was good for food, two, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and three, that it was desired to make one wise. One, two, three. There she has, Satan has three yeses. And what happened? Did she buy it? The next thing we're told, and she took the fruit thereof and did eat. But that didn't stop the story. She went to Adam and showed Adam what she had done. She had eaten from the tree that was forbidden, and she had not died. Adam, you must share this fruit just as I have eaten it. I want you to taste it and enjoy the feelings that I have. I am wiser. It's not true what God said. Now, Adam didn't have that full experience that she had in engaging with the serpent. But what happened with Adam as he stood there looking at Eve his beautiful wife, he could not think of living without her. She, Adam was in love with Eve. And so he had the second principle. Whatever you fall in love with, you must be willing to pay the seller's price. In his love for Eve, he made the decision, if you're going to die, I will die with you. And he took the fruit, and he did eat. And that's the story 
of how we have fallen into this pattern of living from our limbic system, from Adam and Eve, this tendency to work from what pleases us has been passed on from generation to generation. Let's look a little more detail at what happened to Eve. When Eve sinned, there was a dopamine rush. Here's a passage that I've read. It's in a book called Story of Redemption. And it's more detailed into what was going on in the garden. One of the passages makes this statement. She then imagined that she felt the quickening power of a new and elevated experience as the result of the exhilarating influence of the forbidden fruit. She had a quickening feeling and an exhilarating influence. And then it says she was in a strange and unnatural excitement. What that was was the result of a release of dopamine in her brain. And as we had discussed in our previous in a previous um, lecture, the first part of the physiology of addiction, the nucleus accumbens is one of the main tissues in the brain that are responsible for the pattern of addiction. Because when we have an abundance, an over-release of dopamine, we want to continue to go back to that experience, that habit, that practice, and have that same experience again. And then with the dopamine not only giving us a sense of pleasure and the memory of how good it made me feel, it's a driving force saying, I've got to have it again. I can't live without that experience. So one thing I want to clarify. As we talk about pleasure, the nucleus accumbens, God made that as part of our function. It is part of our ability to enjoy the life that God gave us. But everything that God desires for us is within balance. He doesn't want us having highs and then lows. There's a principle of the way we function. It's what goes up must come down. And so the higher up you get, the farther down the drop will be. And God doesn't want us to experience lows. He wants us to be on a happy, even keel where we're not depressed. But there's times where we need serious reflection. And there's times where we can have fun play. And so within this realm, we have this type of pattern. But what Satan wants us to do is he wants to peak our thrills so that we will constantly be thrill-seeking. And the hormones, not only dopamine, but there's endorphins and our epinephrine and all these sensational hormones that um, make us feel good for a moment, drive us high, but then they leave us down. And that's the work of Satan. So I just wanted to clarify, it's not that God doesn't want us to have pleasure. He wants us to have pleasure evermore. He wants us to live with joy. But it's not the strange and unnatural excitement 
that Satan wants us to experience from sin. I want to make one other point with this as well. Every time we sin, we have a dopamine release. Sin keeps us in its trap because it really is pleasing to our brain. If we hated sin, we would never do it. If touching a hot stove, you have a wood stove that's flaming hot, and you put your hand on it, if that gave you pleasure, every day you would be touching it, and pretty soon your hand would be gone because it would be burned away. So we don't do things because it brings us pain. We are enticed into doing the habits that we do because of a release of overabundance of joy and a sense of well-being. And it drives us to keep wanting that. So let's summarize what we've talked about. Hypnosis puts the limbic drive above the frontal lobe of God's law. And there's a dopamine release with that that keeps us going in that direction. That's the pattern of addiction, the pattern of sin. So what happens to the king? We're told in a um, passage in volume 5 that was written to messages to the church to encourage them how to make right choices. It says the will was at the fall, given into the control of Satan. Instead of being recognizing that God was the king, Adam and Eve changed ruler. They turned their will to say, I am now your servant. In fact, it would be better stated, I am now your slave. And once you're a slave of Satan, he doesn't give you freedom of choice. He will do everything to hold you in his power. There's another passage that explains what happened. This was back from the book that I mentioned called Story of Redemption. We're told that Adam and Eve, that after they had sinned, they were informed that they would have to leave the garden home. That because of their transgression, they had opened a way for Satan to gain access more readily to them. Remember I told you just a little bit earlier in our talk on hypnosis that once you give yourself over to hypnosis, your mind is more readily hypnotized. And so it weakens the ability of the mind, the frontal lobe, to be in control of those passions that are always surging up in us. Adam and Eve heard this sentence that they have to leave Eden, and they pleaded with God. It says they entreated to be permitted to remain. They promised that they would, in the future, yield explicit obedience to God. How many times have you said that? I will never do that again. Please, Mom, don't punish me. Give me another chance. Give me another chance. Because we always think in our mind that we will never do it again until the passions rise up again. And God knew better. God made Adam and Eve, and he knew how the brain worked. And so what he told them, he informed them that in their fall 
from innocence to guilt that they gained no strength, but what they gained was great weakness. They would have far less strength in the future to remain true and loyal to God with their state of conscious guilt. Let's bring this to a close. Basically, what happens when we fall under sin, any time we sin, it is a result of a changed law, and the authority level in our mind has changed. So when we want to free ourselves from addictions, when we want to come back to the restored state that God has for us, there's going to be two things that need to be changed back to the original way. The laws that are governing us in our frontal lobe must be restored to God's kingdom. And the limbic system that functions by our animal drives, our instinct drives, our desires and passions, they must say, I will only make these decisions if it is according to the laws that God has given me. So those are the two things. I want to encourage you to continue to watch our presentation on the physiology of victory because God doesn't want us to be a slave to sin and he has made a plan of escape. I invite you to join us again and I pray that something we have said today will be of a blessing to you. And may God bless you and watch between us until we see each other again, is my prayer. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.